1: Hi everybody, welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today I'm talking with Tabitha Ferrar. She has recovered without the aid of traditional treatment after 10 years of anorexia. After her recovery, Tabitha went on to blog, podcast and write books about how she recovered. We're discussing her book Rehabilitate, Rewire, Recover, Anorexia Recovery for the Determined Adult. Tabitha, welcome to the show. Hello Rebecca, thank you for having me. So Tabitha, what inspired you? I mean, obviously, this is part of your story, but not everybody takes their story further to share it. So what inspired you to share your story with everybody?
2: Well, I started blogging about my recovery years ago, and really, when I started blogging it was it was mostly just me i didn 't think anybody would ever read my blog and People did start reading my blog and then they started writing to me as well and then they started asking me if I coach them and so that 's how the coaching thing came about and then I just really felt like I wanted to write down everything that I thought I knew and and that I sort of talked about in coaching and what I'd learned from coaching people in a place where people could just read it and then maybe try and work things out a little bit for themselves. Because I do believe that people with eating disorder are usually highly intelligent people. And when they when they know what they need to do, a lot of people really do get on and do it. I just wanted to provide a resource that was easily accessible for people without having to actually talk to me personally.
1: <laughs> so, um, can you just tell us a little bit about what your journey was
2: like? Absolutely. I developed anorexia relatively late, um, statistically anyway. I, my mm-hmm. onset of anorexia wasn't until I was almost 18, so I was quite late into my 17th year, and I was a really body confident teenager. I really didn't have any negativity around my body. And um, the reason that I developed anorexia is because I wanted to lose a little bit of weight, not because I was unhappy with my body, but because I worked as an exercise jockey for a racehorse trainer. And some of the horses were quite small and me being quite tall, I was just a little bit heavy for one of the horses that I really liked and wanted to be able to exercise. So it just started with me wanting to lose five pounds so that I could get the ride on this particular horse. And when I went into that, just, oh, I'll just, I'll just eat a little less for a week or so, something got triggered within me that meant that after I'd lost that five pounds, I just wanted to continue losing weight. And so, uh, no, sorry. That led sorry. To 10 years. <laughs> Um, yeah.
1: uh, within that ten years, um, you uh, obviously it must have progressed from just controlling a little bit of of how you were eating. So, so what happened to make you understand that you had an illness aside from just
2: some dieting? It took a really long time for me to understand that I had a problem um, or what my problem was because I te- I took psychology at A level in England, and um, in our psychology class, we were taught the type of person who gets anorexia and that would be a a young teenage girl that didn't like their body and wanted to lose weight and that just wasn't me at all so I thought it was actually impossible for me to have anorexia oh we'd also been taught that in order to have anorexia you have to have suffered some form of childhood trauma and I hadn't I really hadn't so I didn't think I could have anorexia it really wasn't until maybe six or seven years in maybe even longer than that that I started to understand that I had anorexia, just because I didn't know it was possible for somebody like me to develop that. And after that understanding, I was then able to, it took me four years, to sort of work out what I needed to do in order to recover. And there was a lot of trial and error in there. So,
1: um, it's it, it interesting because it, having studied the way you did, um, there must be a, a textbook way that anorexia is explained and, you know, you don't sound like your textbook if you started late statistically and, and uh, you know, you're not f- checking off all these boxes. So I'm just wondering if a lot of people are misdiagnosed or aren't diagnosed
2: just because of that. Absolutely. It's a huge problem. Um, Take men, for example. Um, I talk to a lot of men with eating disorders and anorexia. And um, a lot of the time, those guys are are just not diagnosed because their treatment providers don't see them. They can't see a, a man having anorexia. Even now, even things are way better than they were when I was in recovery in terms of the understanding of who can actually develop an eating disorder. But even now, I talk to people that have likely had anorexia for 10 plus years, but because they're male, they're just not seen. It's not even asked. It's just not even a question. Their treatment providers don't see it. And that also happens with older adults. A lot of people develop anorexia much later on in life. And again, they're not seen. It's just not even considered by their treatment providers. And then there's also um, people in larger bodies who develop restrictive eating disorders. And because they don't go below that statistical low BMI, they are also not seen as having a restrictive eating disorder, nor are people of color a lot of the time.
1: That's interesting. So, I I mean, I I guess the idea that we often have of someone with anorexia is a preteen girl who's reading magazines and has a body image issue and wants to change that. And so she develops an eating disorder. And, um, you know, your story isn't like that at all. And it it just makes me wonder if we just have this completely different idea of anorexia and maybe it's a, a brain chemistry issue and and you know just has a trigger like for you when you first dieted something got triggered but was already there
2: well precisely and recent science has shown that there is a genetic component to anorexia so you have to have the genetic predisposition in order to develop it you also have to go into energy deficit and so Anybody could have that genetic predisposition. You can't tell by looking at somebody if they're genetically predisposed to an eating disorder. And in the culture that we're in, when dieting is so encouraged, dieting and excessive exercise, people quite easily go into energy deficit. And so if you have that genetic makeup and you go into energy deficit, it's highly likely that you'll develop a restrictive eating disorder.
1: Well, and there's something that I've seen um, be the the exact opposite. Um, I treat people who are chronically ill, and often because of their illness, they lose weight. And they'll show me how many calories they're eating, and they're not restricting at all. And because of their weight loss, they're told they have an eating disorder, and then they can't get treatment for anything, and they're ignored. So it, it makes me wonder that uh, doctors perhaps are not being taught properly about what this actually is, and they're just looking at mm-hmm. how somebody displays. Oh, you're thin, so you must have an eating disorder, or not. Oh, you could
2: also be sick. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it certainly works both ways, and we're. It's wonderful that the genetic research is coming out to really put um, science behind what a lot of people have been saying for a long time now. That this is not a purely psychological disorder, that there is a biological um, component to it and a metabolic component as well. And hopefully, now that we have science behind that, it will begin to filter through and doctors and therapists will start to be taught what's actually behind these illnesses.
1: Uh, which I think is really important because if people aren't getting diagnosed and people are misdiagnosed, we're going to miss a lot. Because I, I, um, I don't know if this was in your case, but I can imagine that there may also be a lot of shame that comes along with an eating disorder. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, you're, it's very difficult, if that's the case, to come forward and ask for help.
2: Especially difficult to come forward and ask for help and then be told, Oh, well, you can't have an eating disorder because you're a guy or because you're over 20 or because you're Hispanic, whatever it is. And some, a lot of the time people aren't told that outright, but that's the feeling that they're given when they express that concern to their doctor. Sort of, oh, no, I don't think it would be that. Um, and so imagine working up that, that bravery to overcome that shame to say, I think I have this problem and then being dismissed.
1: It, that would make it very difficult because it would be hard to reach out again if you um, mustered all your courage to reach out to your healthcare provider, and then you know you are dismissed. Um, do you, what do you find um, in your conversations with people? Are the uh, responses by doctors when people are seeking help
2: usually dismissive, especially if somebody presents in anything other than a super skinny body, um, and? a person can be restricting food very heavily and still present in a larger body due to their metabolism lowering and and their body struggling to try and fight against the restriction. And so that's, that's really often not seen. And that can lead to really quite severe mental suffering because dietary restriction does have A psychological component. When the brain and the body thinks that there's not enough food in the environment, that's a real place of stress for the brain and the body. And so often people who don't present in super skinny bodies are just found that they've got nowhere to go because their treatment providers don't consider them to have an eating disorder. And so they can start to feel very alone and very depressed and very very lonely, which again have a, a snowball effect that has consequences too.
1: Well well I'm guessing that that's how a lot of people feel anyway. Mm. You know very isolated um in their illness and I'm, I'm sure it's not something they sit around and talk about with their friends. Um in No, it's it's lots of shame. Yeah, I mean, unless they're they're covering it up as a, a diet or something else, but I'm sure they're not outright saying, "Oh, I have an eating disorder, and this is what I did with it yesterday," <laughs> you know, as small wow. talk. Um, so that that's you know that secrets and, and sh- I, I I would gather can make a lot of shame as well.
2: Absolutely, and just having a restrictive eating disorder has so many consequences, both physically and mentally. And one of those mental consequences is a tendency to isolate because the brain starts prioritizing seeking food over anything else. So we tend to become less social and want to engage less socially anyway and do things like sit at home and obsess about the food that we can't eat instead. So there's just there's so many effects of a restrictive eating disorder. There's usually not a single facet of a person's life that isn't affected by it in some way.
1: So, aside from genetics, do we know any other um, anything else that causes anorexia?
2: Well, you have to go into energy deficit, so you need the genetic component for a restrictive eating disorder to be triggered, but it's triggered by energy deficit. So, if a person had the genetic component, but they never went into energy deficit, which is when you, for a prolonged period of time, eat less than you need, basically then they may never develop a restrictive eating disorder. So the energy deficit component is we know that that needs to happen in order for that to spark off.
1: So can you explain the energy deficit a little bit more? Like what exactly does that mean?
2: Well, energy deficit is when a person is consuming less than their energetic needs, their daily energetic needs. and. But on, for, on a, over a long period of time, so not just usually for a couple of days, but if a person is consistently consuming less food than they need, then that starts to have consequences within their body. And usually the short-term consequence is some weight loss. And then if the energy de- deficit goes on, if a person continues eating less than their body really wants them to eat, then usually the weight loss stops, and what happens is the body then compensates by lowering metabolism. And lowering metabolism means that the body is just not operating in its most optimally healthy way. It's not got the resources to give to the organs that they need. It's like it's stealing energy by lowering the output of all of its organs. It's as if you had a house and you started to turn all the lights off to save energy. And so that means that just that what our bodies do to repair all of these organs that we have on day-to-day to repair, maintenance, function optimally, nourish. That's just not happening. And so while a person on the outside can look like their weight loss isn't that severe and look like they're okay, inside what's happening is energy is being leached from places where it's really needed. That leads to things like menstrual cycle usually is one of the first things to go, which is something that we can observe in females we can observe the menstrual cycle stopping but that's just one thing and if you think of the of the reproductive system as one system in the body we can tell that that's been affected by energy deficit because the menstrual cycle stops but every system in the body is affected by energy deficit just a lot of them there's nothing that we can see or observe to tell that that's been happening hmm
1: um, it, I, I want to talk about this more. We are going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Tabitha Farrar, and we're discussing her book, Rehabilitate, Rewire, Recover. And we'll be back shortly.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Decide that you have something to say and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
5: How much health and wellness information have you been exposed to today? Listen to Prescription for Success with Dr. Emile Haldi. Healing and empowerment start from within, but it also takes the best knowledge and advice. That's what you'll find here. Dr. Haldi and his guests will help you make the right life-enhancing decisions for well-being success. Tune in live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Prescription for Success. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper.
1: A stain-free and clean home is something to be proud about, but it's hard to maintain when you're using cleaning products that don't work well or take forever to use. Q Carbona, a household brand that has turned their decades of cleaning expertise into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. When I first heard about Stain Devils, my stain-removing game was changed. Think about this. If you have a chocolate stain, it wouldn't make sense to treat it with a formula that removes wine, because they're chemically different. Knowing this, Carbona created specific stain removers for specific stain types. Genius, right? Beyond stain removers, they have highly efficient products for your laundry, carpets, and washing machine. My co-host Oliver, a Chihuahua cross, wants to remind you not to forget about the Pet Stain and Odor Remover. Want to start living your life unstained? Shop Carbona.com with code FTTC for 20% off your order. So Tabitha, um, we, we talked about um, the energy deficit and you know one thing that, that came to mind when you were explaining this was um, the, the fasting, the uh, intermittent fasting that's becoming a, a trend and uh, I'm just wondering how you feel about that and also how somebody can differentiate between doing fasting for their health or whether they are developing an eating disorder.
2: Yeah, the way I feel about intermittent fasting is just about the way I feel about any sort of diet or way to eat or quote-unquote health protocol, which basically is a restriction. If you strip away (laughs) all of the grand ideas in the marketing, it's saying this is a way to eat less food. And in a sense, it's also what it's saying is We need to control our bodies because our bodies don't know how to operate themselves. So we need to control our intake, which is sort of the absolutely where I used to be (laughs) when I was in my eating disorder. I had this belief system that I couldn't trust my body and I needed to manage it. I needed to manage every calorie and I needed to manage all of my exercise. And I certainly couldn't trust my desire. I couldn't trust what my body was telling me to eat. I had to override that. And when I was in that space, that was undoubtedly the unhealthiest time of my life. And in order to recover, I had to relearn or undo that belief system. And I had to start trusting my body. Because if my body says, I want a Mars bar right now, that that's because my body needs that. Because my body is itself. And my body has no agenda to do anything other than optimize health. And sometimes we need sugar, and sometimes we need fat, and sometimes we need vegetables. But when you've been restricting food for a long time, usually your body starts saying, I need sugar and I need fat. And it starts saying that really loudly. And then that begins to scare people and they think that they're out of control and they definitely can't listen to their body. And so you get into this cycle of mistrust, miscommunication, not trusting your body, which ends up in a battle where you're fighting your own biology because you have this idea that you would like to be in a smaller body or a different body than your body is genetically programmed to be at. And so I just don't think any of that optimizes health or makes people healthier. And until we can start to understand that skinny does not equal healthy, that's just going to continue.
1: Um, well, well, I agree with that. You know, I, I was, um, I, I lost some weight this year, which wasn't on purpose, but, um, you know, I found that, um, that, people were commenting more than when I was at actually a more comfortable weight. And, and, and I thought that was interesting. I had some conversations about that because, you know, we're very, very focused on how skinny we should be. And, you know, we forget that Marilyn Monroe was, I think, a size 14 or something. And uh, she was considered one of the most beautiful women in the world. And now our focus is on to be as skinny as we can be and to, to control that more and restrict that
4: more
2: absolutely and the irony is is that since people have been dieting which is probably 60 70 years I don't know but since people have been dieting our, our health in most nations has actually got worse because what happens when you diet is yet yeah, you rage war on your biology because it, as far as your biology is concerned Access to food is one of the fundamental things. It's one of the things it needs. And if it's if you start to restrict food, that makes your brain think that food is scarce, and that is war in terms of uh, as far as your body is concerned. Food scarcity is a huge problem. As you know, if you think of human evolution, when food scarcity would have really been one of the biggest threats to humans. So our bodies still react like that. Um, our genetics have thousands of years worth of information and for a huge chunk of that food scarcity would have been a huge threat and so our genetics have to have a response for when food is threatened and that response is usually not what we expect it to be So what do you
1: recommend for somebody say that they their eating disorder is the opposite where they're overeating and they've developed type 2 diabetes and and you know their health is affected by food so that they don't end up you know hurting themselves. How can they
2: get control of that. I've never met a person who quote unquote overeats who doesn't also restrict. So. The story of most people that end up in much larger bodies is they start off in maybe in a slightly larger body than average. And maybe if you look at their whole family genetics, that's where their families lie. That's, that's a body shape that seems to run in their family. And then they get told they should go on a diet, so they go on a diet. And their body, in response to that diet, lowers metabolism. And starts to fight back and say, I need more food, which usually leads to some form of binge eating. Restriction almost always leads to some form of binge eating, lack of control over food. That's your biology just saying, all right, enough is enough. I'm going to take food now because it's here and I need it. And so they lower their metabolism by not eating enough. And then their body wants food that is not being given. So they start to binge, which means that they gain more weight. Because they intermittent binging with restricting. And every single time that they restrict, then their body reacts by saying, uh-uh, I'm going to take that food. It leads to another binge. And so there's, I think there's, there's plenty of studies now that show that dieting actually leads to increased body size because you can't fight your biology. And so if somebody is in a larger body and they find that they are binging or consuming odd food. What they need to do is they need to stop restricting. And that can be scary because, you you know, they're they're scared of gaining more weight. But whilst restriction is there, overconsumption will always be there as well. That is the body's defense mechanism to restriction. So, um,
1: which I find interesting and I think this would be important for us to understand because I I know that there's a lot of, um, well, there's a lot of shame for people that are overweight as well and, um, they're often not treated well. Um, you know, if you're overweight walking down the street, um, you know, people will say things to you and they think it's their business, not understanding your story and how hard you've tried and all the things that you've done and, um. You know, it it sometimes I think it gets to the point where where people give up because they're in the situation that you explained, where they're going up and down, and then they're just
2: continually going up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it it can be horrific for people. Um, and I I talk to as a coach, I talk to people in all size bodies, and I meet people with restrictive eating disorders in all size bodies, and my message is the same to all of them you have to stop restricting because restriction is waging war on your biology and you won't win. Your biology is not gonna say, oh yeah, you know what, you're right. I should need less food. (laughs) It's just not gonna do that. It's always gonna push back and you're always going to at some point binge. And the difference between um, people in larger bodies with restrictive eating disorders and people in smaller bodies with restrictive eating disorders is that when a person is in a larger body, all people see is the binge. So when I had anorexia, and I was, I, I was in a smaller body, and I binged I binged daily when I had anorexia, and all people saw was the restriction. They would always tell me, you're not eating enough, because I was in a smaller body. When a person is in a larger body, and they, they, they might be binging daily, like I was, because they're restricting daily, like I was, All people see is the binging. They don't see the restriction, and they tell them you should eat less. And so it puts them in this completely helpless cycle where they're being told by their treatment providers to continue to do the very thing that is feeding their eating disorder. Hmm. Well, and and I I wonder
1: if they those questions often aren't even asked. You know, if somebody's overweight, it is assumed that they're probably eating at McDonald's and drinking pop and cake when they may in fact not be doing so. And um, you know, just that assumption will will make a comment from somebody or or even a healthcare provider because I've heard stories like that. Oh, stop eating hamburgers and you'll be okay. And you know, the person's only eating salad. And, um, you know, they're not being looked at as this person who has tried and is struggling.
2: Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. Absolutely. It's yeah. just not even considered a lot of the time.
1: Yeah. So in, in your book, you, you talk about how what you do is different than psychotherapy. Can you explain that?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm not a therapist, so <laughs> I've never... <laughs> to a therapist so I don't even know I wouldn't I wouldn't be at all able to do psychotherapy in any way shape or form and what I what I do is I look at eating disorders from a very biological perspective this was caused by genetics plus energy deficit that triggered your eating disorder your eating disorder is going nowhere until you can amend that energy deficit so nutritional rehabilitation is required we can't flick that switch off while you're still in energy deficit So nutritional rehabilitation often requires eating a lot of food, and eating without restriction. And the second component to it is neural rewiring. Because when a person's had a restrictive eating disorder for a number of years, uh, what our brains do is our brains form neural pathways, and these can be behavioral, and they can be emotional reactions, and they can be thought processes. And when all you've done is obsess about food and plan your eating and plan your restriction and compulsively exercise for a number of years, then you've got all these neural pathways in your brain that just tell you, this is the way I do things. This is the way I am. And so even if we amend that energy deficit and we nutritionally rehabilitate somebody, if we're not rewiring those neural pathways, then they'll just fall straight back into the behavioral pattern, which we see a lot in the revolving door treatment that we have for eating disorders, where somebody goes to a treatment center, they're nutritionally rehabilitated somewhat, and then they come out and they fall back into the same old patterns. Now, for me, one of the fundamental and the most important things about neural rewiring is that we have to, when a person has a restrictive eating disorder, we have to rewire the belief system that they have in their head that thinner is better and that their unsuppressed body weight, so their natural body weight, is a bad thing. Because that's what leads to the fear of weight gain. And the way that belief systems are formed is by, you know, our brains are always watching what we're doing and they're learning from it. And so if you imagine me for 10 years, I've been restricting food, compulsively exercising. For 10 years, I've been acting as if weight gain is a bad thing. I've been acting as if weight gain is the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. I've gone to great lengths, obsessive lengths, to not gain weight. And so it's no surprise that my brain has a belief system that weight gain is a bad thing. And it's no surprise that then if I gain weight, my brain has a problem with that, starts to freak out. And so what we need to do is we need to rewire that belief system that weight gain is a bad thing and that our natural body weights are undesirable. And we do that in the process. And so Unless you rewire that belief system that weight gain is a bad thing and that your natural body weight is undesirable, you're not going to get somebody fully recovered from a restrictive eating disorder because as soon as they gain weight, they're going to freak out and want to lose it all. So the neural rewiring, I think that's, a, that's one of the bits, the key pieces that's not really understood in eating disorder treatment. And it's really, really important for full recovery.
1: Well and I think a lot of the the eating sort of treatments were probably created before we even understood that our brains were were plastic and and exactly. we could rewire them. And so they're set yeah. on an idea that you need to learn these new rules which I think is um what most people walk out with as new rules of how to eat and they still don't know how to do that and they're still restricting in a certain way
2: our brains are always learning our brains are always shortcutting
1: we'll uh we'll pick this up when we uh, get back we're gonna take a quick break we're talking today with Tab- tabitha Ferrar, and we'll be back shortly
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas.
5: How much health and wellness information have you been exposed to today? Listen to Prescription for Success with Dr. Emil Haldi. Healing and empowerment start from within, but it also takes the best knowledge and advice. That's what you'll find here. Dr. Haldi and his guests will help you make the right life-enhancing decisions for well-being success. Tune in live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Prescription for Success.
1: everybody uh, welcome back today we're talking with Tabitha Farrar and we're discussing her book rehabilitate rewire recover anorexia recovery for the determined adult so uh, Tabitha is it possible for somebody with an eating disorder to learn to trust their body again
2: it's it's actually it's not just possible it's required if you want to fully recover you have to um, your body's the only thing that's going to be with you your entire life. And if you don't have a trust-based relationship with your body, you, you actually can't satisfy its needs. You can't give it what it needs. If your body says, oh, hey, I need to eat right now, and you're like, I don't trust that. You shouldn't need to eat. You're, you're immediately in conflict because, like I said, your body doesn't have any hidden agenda other than to satisfy its needs to be optimally healthy. Um, so we, we absolutely have to we wire the mistrust that we have of our bodies and develop a trusting relationship with our bodies in order to be happy and be able to recover.
1: So um, what would be somebody's first step to achieving that?
2: The rewiring component relies on your ability to recognize, first of all, recognize a neural pathway. And so, for example, I might start to recognize that, oh, every time I feel hunger, or I start thinking about food, my immediate reaction is to dismiss that or tell myself that I shouldn't be doing that, that that's not appropriate. And once you can start to detect that that's happening, that means you can begin to intervene. So once I've I'd identified this is a thing that happens with me, when I feel hungry, I, I jump to dismissing it without even considering whether I might actually be hungry. So then when that starts to happen, I make myself a rule that I'm not allowed to do that. If I feel hungry, I don't allow myself to question. I pick up some food and I eat some food. So that, that's just one example of, of how you can start to recognize what a, a wired pathway is. Like my wired pathway was immediate distrust if I felt hunger. And I had to start to intervene. And by intervening, by taking an action, which was to eat food, which was the opposite of what my restrictive action would have been, I started to teach my brain that mistrust is not actually appropriate because I didn't act on the mistrust. I acted on trust. And if you can consistently act on trust, you begin to teach your brain that that's now the appropriate reaction.
1: Hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I can see how this would be very difficult, especially if you're used to restricting. And, and I've, I've had um, conversations on this show before about, um, you know, getting to that point where it's actually okay to, you know, eat that potato chip. And um, I, I'm wondering what was that like for you when you took that step into eating the foods that you were so afraid
4: of?
2: So initially, I had a, a, I had a hardwired reaction that in my brain, which was, if I eat more than my usual amount that is safe, my emotional reaction would be guilt, shame, and fear. That's what my brain had learned was the appropriate response. When I started to understand, and I did a lot of sort of meditation practice to help me understand how our thoughts work and, and how emotions work. And when I was able to understand that that emotional reaction was just that, to a hard one, same way you code a computer. It was like my brain had been coded to think that guilt, shame, and fear are the appropriate reactions to eating more than usual. And so, when I was a bit able to understand that, I was able to just see that emotional reaction for what it was, which is just a suggestion from my brain, my brain. Hey, you usually feel after you do So, so, um, and
1: then I realized I had a choice. I think that's really interesting that that you have a choice, um, you know, and there is a lot of shame around eating a lot of those foods that you probably were restricting anyway. Um, I know because of what I do, and I do some, um, you know, diet changes with people, when I go to a party, people are afraid to eat bad food around me, which I find really strange because I don't care, and, and yeah. I may be eating the same thing that they are. Um, it, you know, I, I eat well and I also have, you know, treats and snacks. And and um, I, I, I do wonder if they're just, you know, uh, projecting their own shame over the food that they're eating uh, onto me because they think that I might be judging them. But I also Absolutely. think that, yeah, that might be happening on, on some level somewhere else in their life as well.
2: I mean, it's just really rich in our culture. Everywhere you're told these are bad food, these are good food, so it's going to be there on an underlying level whether a person has eating disorder or not. Um, that idea that certain food should elicit feelings of guilt, shame, and, and all of those things. Um, but but when you can realize that's just my brain generating an emotional reaction that it thinks is appropriate, and the reason it thinks that it's appropriate is because in previous times when it's generated or suggested that emotional reaction, I've agreed with it by going into that emotional reaction, by participating in it. So once I was able to understand that I have to be able to feel my brain suggesting an emotional reaction and not participate in it, by not participating in the feelings of guilt, shame, and fear, I'm beginning to teach my brain that that is no longer the appropriate emotional reaction to that situation. And that's how our brains learn. Uh, it's conditioning, really. But it works. You just have to be very consistent with it.
1: Well, and I can imagine it's, it's not perfect at first.
2: And you're going to have those feelings. Absolutely not. And, Yeah, and it's you're like human. It's like a skill. Any skill, <laughs> you have to develop it. You have to practice it. You have to be consistent. You have to develop it. It is a skill set.
1: Um, so, uh, you also talk in your book about exercise. So, with somebody with an eating disorder, what is their relationship with exercise um, while they have the disorder?
2: Well, it, not everybody, but I'd say the majority of people have some form of compulsive movement or exercise when they develop a restrictive eating disorder. And I th- I, if we go back to the com- genetic component, my own belief is that anything that's genetic is, has evolved there for a reason. And so I see anorexia as a migration response, that your brain thinks that food is scarce because you're not eating enough. And the genetically coded response, therefore, is to do what migrating animals do, which is to eat very little and to move a lot. Migrating animals do not stop and eat very much. They just Their brains flip. And they just decide they've got to go, go, go until they get to where they're going. And if you think about uh, a bird, it's not like that bird makes a conscious decision. Oh, hey, I'm going to fly to Australia. What happens is the food gets scarce in the area that the bird is living in. And then suddenly the bird just has this desire to get in the air and fly in a certain direction. Doesn't even know where it's going. It just, it just happens. And that's what it felt. That's what anorexia felt like to me. It just felt like. I suddenly it was just happening. I had to move a lot, and I had to eat very little. And I did that for 10 years. And my movement compulsion was just excessive. It was unsustainable, and I sustained it for 10 years. It was exhausting. And the movement, the exercise piece, is another it's, it's less overlooked now, but especially when I was in recovery, it wasn't even considered. Everybody thought exercise was a good thing. I could present to my doctor. Drastically underweight, restricting food, and exercising for hours a day, and they'd still tell me, "Oh yes, exercise is good for you." Exercise mm. was far from good for me in that state. And so, again, we have to go back to these these assumptions that we are really hold, held by our culture that exercise is always a good thing. You know, when it's compulsive, it really isn't. Same way, dietary restriction isn't a good thing.
1: Um, well, you know, I'm. I, you'll forgive me for this analogy if it, if it's not the right one, but um, I've, I'm reminded of a, a cat that I had adopted, and he was um, un, um, He wasn't thin, but he was malnourished, and you, I could tell by how much food he ate, and because the quality of food was different, it was it was a higher quality food, and he ate bowls and bowls of it. And I actually let him do so, even though a lot of people think that you should, uh, you know, restrict cats eating. I trusted him, and he eventually stopped doing so, and he leveled out, and he was the proper mm-hmm. weight. He was he was never overweight, and I'm wondering if it's the same when, when you go to eating, you're suddenly, of course, this can be very scary if you've had an eating disorder, but you have a lot of cravings, and your body needs Absolutely. a lot. Yeah, and and then you you probably adjust after in the same way he did.
2: Yes, and I think that probably one of the most controversial things I talk about is that binge eating is part of recovery. If you imagine a a tribe of migrating humans, they've migrated out of an area of food scarcity. They're following a tribe of buffalo or something like that. And then what's the first thing that they're going to do when they actually arrive at the land of milk and plenty where all the food is? They're just going to eat. They're going to eat and eat and eat and eat and eat until that energy deficit is amended. And so what happens with people with restrictive eating disorders is our bodies usually are screaming at us to eat, which terrifies us, because we're scared of binge eating. But binge eating is often the road to full recovery, because your body wants to get as much food in as possible. And I believe that binge eating is a biological response to periods of restriction. And you've just got to let your body go wild I, when I went into recovery, I consumed amounts of food that just seemed unthinkable for a human being to consume. And then it died down when my body started to trust that food is no longer scarce. It's okay. It doesn't have to have it all right now because the food's going to keep on coming. And it died down and it died down and it died down. Until one day I was left with what could be considered a normal, normal eating. But I had to really hold my nerve through that binge eating period because it's terrifying because you don't know when it's going to stop and when you're in it, it doesn't feel like it's ever going to stop. It doesn't feel like you're ever going to not want to eat all the food. But as if we go back to trusting our bodies, it doesn't serve our bodies to binge eat forever. That's not comfortable for the body to consume that much amount of food. That actually puts the stress on the body. That's, a, that's the body taking a drastic action to amend a situation that it doesn't want to be in. That's the situation of being underweight. And so if we can trust our bodies to say, you know what, if my body is saying that right now I just need to eat all the food, then we just go with it. And your body, all it wants to get to is to a point where it can feel safe and optimize off. And so that's the hard bit for a lot of people. And especially because even the word binge has so much attached to it. Bad thing to do. I'm <laughs> uh, telling you, if you, I would not have fully recovered if I had not allowed myself to binge eat a lot for a very long time.
1: Well, it, I can see where that that would have been very scary when you're used to restricting, for, especially for yeah. ten years, and you didn't have, you know, my my cat. He didn't have those kind of fears, so he just ate and ate until he felt better. And animals um, can teach us a lot. Yeah. Yeah and um you know it it I I I'm going to go back to the cat analogy cuz I actually don't restrict my cat's food. I always leave food out and I'm always told oh you should only feed them twice a day and do this and that and and I've never had an overweight um cat and I think they just eat until they're full and then they're done. And um Absolutely. perhaps that's what we need to do as well.
2: <laughs> yeah and and there have also been studies that have shown using animal models that um, restriction, restricting an animal's diet then leads to overconsumption because mm-hmm. restriction then leads to binge eating. That's, that's the body's response to restriction is to go, oh, well, we're in a famine, I need to get as much food in as I can while it's available, which makes absolute sense. Of course our bodies would do that because they're very intelligent and because for thousands of years um, food scarcity would have been the biggest threat to humans' ability to survive.
1: Um, yeah, which uh, definitely it it does um, make sense. Now, if somebody is trying to deal with this on their own, what, what can they do um, just to deal with those kind of fears?
2: I think that the key to dealing with most fears is understanding the fear and understanding why it's there and where it's coming from. And Understanding the fear doesn't make it go away, but it can help you regulate your response to the fear. And I always say to people, like, in recovery, we have to get very used to fear just sitting there next to us as we move through recovery. The fear's not going anywhere. The fear is just going to be right there pretty much the whole way to full recovery. So you've got to be like this, this feeling of fear and uncertainty, the uncertainty. I don't know when the binge eating is going to stop, or I don't know when my weight gain is going to stop, and all of those things are uncertain. And we have to work out how to get used to fear and uncertainty being there right beside us, and not allowing it to affect us. So just sort of accepting that this fear is going to sit with me as I move through recovery, and that's okay. It's going to be there. It can't actually hurt me. It's just going to be right there. So, you know, there's no point trying to get rid of the fear. You can't do that. It's not going to go anywhere. Your brain is scared of weight gain, and your brain will only stop being scared of weight gain when it learns that weight gain is nothing to be scared of. So it's, it's going to be there until you've trained your brain that. Um, yeah. And that's okay, actually.
1: I, I actually I like that you said that um, last week. I talked about ADHD, and and um, her comment was to you know walk alongside your differences. And so if you can walk with your fear and em- embrace what what's happening, um, you will you will get to the end.
2: Yes, and I, when I was able to understand, oh, this fear of weight gain is here because I've taught my brain that weight gain is a bad thing by acting as if weight gain is a bad thing once I could understand that I was like oh I know what that fear is and I know why it's there and mm-hmm. so it stopped being as scary and I was able to allow it to just sit there next to me without actually going into it and it's so hard to describe anything that's a mental process it's so hard to describe <laughs> yeah. um, but that's sort of the best way I can illustrate how I was able to m- mitigate that fear and move through it move, move yeah. with it
1: yeah, definitely. Now, if somebody wants more information, how can they get a hold of you or your book?
2: Um, so my website is and, um, but The book's on Amazon, but it's on the website as well. And really, my website has, the, it's all free resources. So there's hundreds of blogs, and there's hundreds of podcasts. And what my book is, is if somebody wants to, Get to the information without sifting through hundreds of blogs, but you don't actually have to buy the book if you' if you can read the blogs and get all of the information that way and that's all free.
1: Oh well, that's perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh pleasure, thank you and. Um, today I was talking with Tabitha Ferrar, and her book was Rehabilitate, Rewire, Recover, Anorexia Recovery for the Determined Adult. If you want more information about my story and what I went through to get um, my health back, you can find that on my website at dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And uh, you can send me an email at anantacalgary at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to make today a great day.